0: Welcome everybody to the adult SLP edition of the Resource Roadmap show. This is where we get to spend about an hour together um, talking directly to the writers who wrote the new releases that we've added to the Access Pass library this month. So we'll get to talk about the new releases, creative ways to use them, bounce ideas off of each other, um, talk about some of the research behind those resources. Um, And we do offer this hour for ASHA CEU credit. So if you want more information, you can go to our website and learn about the access pass. And because we're offering this for CEUs, we do want to verbalize our disclosures, which are that we are all being paid by Therapy Insights to present this show. And we are talking about Therapy Insights products. So I'm your host, my name is Megan, I'm the founder of Therapy Insights. And then we also have Stephanie with us today. Hey Steph. And she is based in Minnesota. She does a little bit of everything, but right now her main focus is outpatient therapy. Is that right? Still true. Yep. Still true. And we also have Jennifer with us, who's based in South Carolina, also does a little bit of everything. And, um, but her focus right now is acute inpatient rehab and LTCH. Correct. That is correct. Excellent. All right. So we're going to get started. I'm going to share my screen so we can see these resources as we talk about them. So here we go. And the first resource is a two-page um, kind of reference slash handout, all about the incentives barometer. And I love this resource because I think so often like these things get handed to patients with like no education or information or reference numbers for what they should be aiming for so the first page has some kind of instructions and background information and the second page has some normative data about the predictive chart of inspiratory capacities so jennifer i'll let you tell us about this resource
1: yes sounds great so Um, like Megan said, this resource is related to incentive spirometers. Um, So if you are kind of like myself and work in the hospital setting, I am sure that you have seen these on our patients bedside tables. Um, And you may not be familiar with, you know, exactly what they're used for, you know, who do they choose to get these incentive spirometers, why they're, why they're given to them. Um, And like Megan said, a lot of times our patients don't really know why they're there and how to use them. And so, um, this is a good handout to just explain some of that information. So I'm going to go over a little bit of that. And then I have one here with me to kind of model how to use it. Um, so an incentive spirometer is a handheld piece of exercise equipment used for the lungs. And so it measures the volume of air inhaled into the lungs during inspiration while also providing visual feedback. And so if you kind of look at this um, one that I have right here, it shows you, you know, the amount of inspired you know, the volume of inspired. Sorry.
0: The volume <sighs> of inspired air. Is that how yes, the volume of inspired
1: air? Sorry, <laughs> couldn't find my words there.
0: Um, and it also kind of gives you this
1: range here where there's a circle piece that you want to get kind of where the smiley face is. And so all of them look a little bit different, but that's kind of our goal, and I'll explain why that is. So We use this device to kind of teach a person how to take slow and deep breaths rather than short and shallow breaths. Um, It exercises the lungs by expanding them um, and inflating them. And this kind of reduces that risk of pulmonary complications such as pneumonia or any other sort of respiratory infection um, by opening up the airway and helping to clear secretions. Uh, so why do our patients have these at the bedside? So often, you know, in the hospital, our patients are either bed bound or they're much less immobile than they were prior to being in the hospital. And so what comes with that is just that overall debility and um, kind of our ability for our patients to be able to open their airways on their own and kind of clear those secretions on their own. So certain diagnoses um, are have a recommendation for using this device. So this might be something as, you know, like asthma. Um, It could be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, um, individuals with COVID-19, cystic fibrosis, uh, neuromuscular or spinal cord injuries, rib fractures even. So, you know, a lot of diagnoses that are related to the lungs, of course. Um, And there are other ones as well. You know, it can just help with a person who is just immobile. Um, and so, norms for inspiratory capacity are based on a person's gender, a person's age, and a person's height. So, for myself, I'm a 31-year-old female. I'm five foot six inches, which would be 66 inches on this chart, and that means that I should be able to achieve an inspired volume of 2,600 milliliters as kind of a normal, healthy person. Um, so. I'm going to kind of read the instructions on how to use it and then just demonstrate how to use it too. So when you're using this device or kind of explaining how to use this device with our patients, you want to make sure, you know, like always when we're doing our exercises, sitting nice and upright um, and holding out the device kind of in front of you or placing it on the bedside table in front of them. You want to breathe in deeply and kind of exhale all of the air in your lungs. And then you want to kind of put this mouthpiece in your mouth And take that slow coordinated breath with trying to get, you know, the maximum inspired volume, but also keeping it within that range. Um, And then you're going to hold your breath for at least five seconds and then exhale your air. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of demonstrate how to use this. So kind of holding it in front of me. I got up to about 30 to 50 there. Um, And it really is kind of challenging to keep this in the range. So thinking about that slow coordinated breathing. Um, So I think it's just helpful to, I like to have one of these and keep it with me and then be able to model this with with my patients um, as well, just so that they understand it better.
0: And I'm assuming like the, the chart that's provided, like the way that I would look at this and maybe you can tell me or give me advice around what I'm thinking here, but, um, let's say that it's, it's predicted that somebody should be able to achieve 2,200 milliliters. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that that is the goal. Like you can go above and beyond that. Right.
1: Right. And so, you know, most of our patients, they're not going to be probably anywhere close to that normative value. Um, And so, you know, you kind of want to get a baseline. Where are they at right now? And then kind of create a goal on your own. So like as you see with this incentive spirometer here, there's kind of this piece that you can move up and down to keep it at that goal level. Um, And then kind of once you achieve that, you can create another short-term goal to get a little bit higher, you know, trying to get closer and closer to that normative value.
0: You know, what would be cool that I wish we would have done and we still could do is, um, a goal tracking chart for the whole team. So like something Mm -hmm. on the wall, because I walk into the room and I'm like, I have no idea who brought this thing in here. (laughs) Like who, who set the number on the thing, like if it was the patient or if that was the PT or OT or nurse or the physician or who respiratory therapist. I feel
1: like our respiratory therapists often give these out.
0: So but just having that number on there and then people kind of collectively taking data in one central place would be Mm -hmm. really nice.
1: Usually they have this chart kind of yeah they usually have this chart in that package. And you know a lot of times that's just going to be thrown away and then you don't like you said really know what your goal is and what you're trying to achieve there yeah, would be helpful
2: or even being able to like show incremental progress because maybe the goal that's on this chart is really high for that patient but Mm -hmm. at least if they saw that slow progress over time maybe they'd have more buy-in right
1: right yeah and I think it's also helpful to just kind of have this information to be able to explain like how is this different than kind of some of the respiratory muscle strength training that we do um, using other devices like EMST and things like that.
2: I like also really like that. this to oh sorry, just because that visual feedback it gives people. I also think that diaphragmatic breathing is a hard concept sometimes for people. So if you have to inhale slowly, they see that visual and then they really have to inhale their lungs appropriately.
1: I agree. Even with myself, I felt like that was challenging to kind of keep it in that range.
0: It's interesting to me now that you're talking about muscle strength training, it's interesting to me that these are so widely available in hospitals, but then when you go to try to find muscle strength training devices, they're nowhere to be found and nobody's ordering them. Or maybe that's just the places that I've worked, but it'd be nice if we had... Uh, respiratory therapists or somebody helping us advocate for all of the devices that could be useful for, um, for the lungs. Yeah, I
2: agree.
0: I mean, I even just learned that Parkinson's is on this list, and
2: I didn't know mm-hmm. that. And I think it's such an underutilized tool we have. Like you said, it's so widely accessible for the most part. Or patients are like, "Yeah, I was given one at the hospital, sitting at home. I don't know what to do with it." But
0: yeah. I was working with a patient using the incentive spirometer in a standing frame. And I thought that was such a cool intervention because there, he wasn't really up for much else, but, um, he was willing and able to do that. And I was like, this is targeting all kinds of things all at once. Um, in addition to the cognitive aspect of just getting out of bed, having a conversation, getting out of the room, all that. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Any other thoughts? Okay, thanks, Jennifer. The next piece we're gonna talk about is organizing and planning a calendar. This is similar to a few other resources we have like this in the library. It's a three-page handout. There's a blank calendar, and then there's a piece of paper that has lots of different notes on it. Um, So people are having to read through the notes and then figure out what should go on the calendar and then answer some questions. Um, Stephanie, is there anything you want to add or talk about this resource? Yeah, I
2: just um, since I'm an outpatient, I work a lot with executive functions after a stroke or brain injury, and I just love these kind of tasks because even though it looks so straightforward, it is one visually complex. You have to read details, remember those details, transfer to a calendar, and then you have to also be paying attention to the fine fine details because I intentionally put some overlapping things in here so it's you can't just throw it on a calendar and be like oh I'm done or that's what my patients have done in the past um so I just I think these are very everyday practical because I don't when I did home care you know you walk into a patient's house and you'd see all these notes everywhere and you're like oh how do you keep that straight or how do you know when to do what um So, I mean, this is just a great executive function task and then I also like that we include kind of follow up questions so like once they have transferred the information, then it kind of encourages them to then take a step back and kind of analyze their calendar and maybe at that point, they might find those kind of errors and self correct or make suggestions on what they might have to adjust in their calendar. So I love these things for my patients, but, and I've gotten good feedback that people really think it's applicable to their everyday
0: life and their goals. Yeah. Yeah. And this one, like a lot of the calendar items are for an adult, maybe Mm -hmm. who doesn't have kids. And I know we have another one in the library that's for college. Yeah.
2: And then then I think we have the the other one that's more adult based too, like not a college student, but.
0: And we talked about maybe adding another one in the future for people who do have young kids trying to figure out like when sporting events are, or, you know, all the little things that parents keep track of. That was a really good idea. Yeah. I think the more you can select the calendar resource or the calendar activity that aligns with that, your patient's lifestyle, the better, the more meaningful. Mm I was going to say,
1: and I also like just having kind of multiple of these so that I know I've had patients in the past where, you know, the first time they do this task, it's it's really hard and um, you know, it's good to have just another one that they can do to try to show progress or kind of implement strategies that we kind of go over when we're doing that first one.
0: Yeah. And it's great for insight and awareness, because I think when we bring in really abstract worksheets and challenges, it's like, of course I can't do that. Like, can anybody do this? But then when you provide a task like this, that they're very familiar with, and then suddenly they realize that something that they used to be able to do a week ago or a month ago, or whatever, prior to the injury, they can suddenly not do. There's a, there's a chance that that insight might start to increase as far as if it's somebody who's struggling to understand that they do have a cognitive impairment. Um, I think these are very helpful. I also I like to think
1: like some, it's a very, oh, go ahead, Jennifer. I was just saying, I like to use this just to kind of work on even like visual scanning and like organization, some of those higher level tasks, just, you know, checking off or kind of crossing through the ones that have already been completed because it is very visually complex and it can get very overwhelming, I think, quickly. With knowing like what you've already completed and what you haven't completed yet or put on that calendar so I, I think it's just it's a great task to kind of target a lot of different cognitive skills
2: yeah i i was going to talk about gestalt and how i like this for my patients who do have difficulties with gestalt so that ability to kind of look at that whole page of all the information but then you really have to zoom in on just one piece and ignore the other parts that can be really hard for patients. Um, So I really like this for that reason. And as a therapist, it gives me more insight into what they're maybe seeing and maybe what they're not seeing.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, any other thoughts before we move on? All right, so we'll move on to talk about um, a resource called Identifying Relevant Versus Irrelevant Information an attention activity. This is a two-page resource. The activity itself is on the first page and then the second page is a blank worksheet to be able to um, complete the task. So Jennifer, tell us about this resource.
1: Yeah, so this is kind of an attention activity that was requested by one of our subscribers. Um, They wanted just kind of an activity where a person did have to identify the relevant versus irrelevant information. Um, and so these passages are kind of related to things about myself. Um, one of the passages <laughs> is related to my two dogs. And then the other one is kind of an NBA star, one of our uh, stars on one of our favorite teams. And so, um, you know, this activity not only works on attention, but other cognitive skills. So if we think about kind of that model of cognition. Attention is our foundation um, for information processing speed, for memory, for executive function. So anytime that we're kind of targeting attention, it can also help those other skills as well. Um, So I think that, you know, completing this activity can be helpful in identifying key details needed to implement use of like external aids for memory management, you know, when they're using writing as a strategy, writing notes and things like that, Um, just being able to kind of pick out the key and relevant information rather than you know writing every single detail down. Um, also can be helpful for like a student that you're working on, you know, helping them kind of return to school. Um, and it may be critical for them to be able to, you know, again pick out that key and relevant information to be able to study for quizzes and tests and things like that. So I kind of think about those type of patients um, and they might be the ones that I would use this activity with. And so um We provide kind of the paragraph and also the individual sentences, like Megan said, so that we could cut them out and kind of discuss with each one. Is it relevant or is it irrelevant? I think, you know, when we're talking about is it relevant or or irrelevant, it's really important for us to think about kind of that main idea of the passage um, and kind of teaching our patients if they're struggling with something like that, you know, oftentimes this can be found in the title of the passage. and so just kind of providing that information when you're introducing this task to them. Um, You know, a sample goal that you might use for this is kind of the patient will demonstrate ability to identify relevant information in a reading passage um, with at least 80% accuracy to demonstrate improved attention to detail. Um, And there can be many other ways that we could word that depending on kind of what our overall goal is, what are we using it for? Um, And so that's, that's this activity.
0: Right. Yeah. As as you're talking, I'm thinking another great resource idea could potentially be a much more complex level than this resource would be yeah. looking at like terms and conditions of various services, like, I don't know, internet services <laughs> or streaming services and like pulling out the relevant information because we live in the United States of America, like the capital of litigious society. And so I feel like none of us really read those, but there are times where you do have to read them and you do have to know what is relevant. So you can follow the rules or, or pay for just what you need or whatever. Um, but I like this because it's just a very basic, Mm -hmm. um, kind of lower level task for people who need that. I
2: feel like a more maybe relevant one, um, not like terms and conditions, but like, you know, everyone's trying to get you to like get insurance for like when you buy tickets or like when you do like Airbnb or like those types of things, like you have to read those pretty closely because before the pandemic, those were pandemic was excluded from that. So I don't know. I just think I've been reading a lot of those lately
0: (laughs) to know what it actually covers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a very functional skill that we all use every day. So this is great.
2: Yeah. I feel like this skill is used a lot for like our patients who are like maybe going back to school or college and, you know, they're reading the textbooks and to them, like they come to you and like everything is highlighted and they're like, how am I going to remember all of this? And so they just don't realize that yes, the details are important, but that's maybe not the exact thing you're supposed to be focusing on for the test
0: hmm Got to be able to pull out the important stuff. Uh-huh. All right. Anything else? Okay. Um, Jennifer, can you read this title? Because it's covered up with my Zoom screen sharing yes. thing. It's the effect of obstructive sleep apnea on swallowing function. Thank you. And this is a one-page handout, and it's got a great graphic that I think helps people understand like what is going on, um, physiologically that causes obstructive sleep apnea. And then Jennifer, I'll let you share more about this resource. Yeah. So this is
1: another resource that was requested by one of our subscribers. Um, you know, as an SLP, we probably know what dysphagia is, uh, disorder of swallowing and obstructive sleep apnea is obstruction in the upper airway that causes respiratory arrest during sleep. So obstructive sleep apnea is, is highly prevalent. Um, it's also considered a public health issue. So since the 1990s, um, this has significantly increased. So we have about 10% of males between 30 to 49 years old are diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. 17% of males from 50 to 70, 70 years old. 70 years old. Uh, 3% of women from 30 to 49 years old, and then 9% of women from 50 to 70 years old are diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea. So how can repeated episodes of this affect swallow function? So one, um, obstructive sleep apnea can lead to reduced oxygen concentration in the blood, or what we call hypoxia. Um, it can also lead to increased carbon dioxide concentration in the blood, or what we call hypercapnia. Um, and it can lead to neuromuscular tissue and sensory changes in the throat. And all of this can kind of lead to that altered swallowing reflex, altered inspiratory suppression time, uh, premer- premature spillage um, prior to initiating the swallow and protecting our airway. And this could obviously lead to penetration and aspiration of food or drink. And so I think the biggest um, kind of deficit in swallowing that we see with somebody that has obstructive sleep apnea is that premature spillage of the food and drink prior to initiating a swallow. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, now how are dysphagia and obstructive sleep apnea correlated following a stroke? Um, So kind of due to them both having the same pathogenesis, they're highly correlated following a stroke. So a stroke can lead to reduced tension in the upper airway dilator muscles, which maintain position of the tongue, it maintains position of the hyoid bone, the soft palate, and this keeps the airway open. And so oftentimes when we have somebody has a stroke, these muscles might lose tension. And so what that what happens with that is, you know, the airway collapses and it causes obstruction. And so um you know, just understanding also weakness of these muscles oftentimes lead to dysphagia as well. And that's kind of how they're correlated. So there is a research article uh, one of our article snapshots that is kind of related to both dysphagia and obstructive sleep apnea. So I'm going to let Stephanie kind of go into more detail on that regarding um, kind of an exercise program that can affect both of them.
2: Yeah. So this article was called the effects of comprehensive swallowing interventions on obstructive sleep apnea and dysphagia after stroke, a randomized control trial. Um, And this was in 2022. So pretty recent. And what the authors found was that untreated obstructive sleep apnea increased the risks of stroke. And for the people who survived a stroke, there is a 70% co-prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea. Um, So that is really good for us to know. So if, you know, you're doing your chart reviews and you see your patient has obstructive sleep apnea, that now is kind of more of like a a red flag for me just to pay more attention to it and dig a little deeper. Um, For the gold standard of OSA treatment is a CPAP machine. However, this... I know you probably heard from your patients that often people don't tolerate it very well. And it, for people who've had a stroke, they also have increased sensitivity and difficulty with kind of placing that mask or accepting that placement on their face um, after the stroke. Um, this study specifically showed that comprehensive oral pharyngeal swallow interventions did improve the muscle strength and it helped change that upper airway structure for both dysphagia and obstructive sleep apnea. And so for the treatment group, they completed 30 minutes of oral pharyngeal muscle training. So they did that twice a day. So first they did 10 minutes of the Masako exercise, and then they did 20 minutes of neuromuscular electrical stimulation treatment. So that was a total of one hour, so two 30-minute sessions. And then that was repeated twice a day, like I said, six days a week for four weeks. Um, so in a clinical standpoint, I know I do neuromuscular electrical stimulation treatment. We, we don't have the opportunity to see people six days a week. So I know that's kind of hard to apply that to a clinic specifically with that protocol. Um, but it was encouraging to see that there was improvement in the swallow function. I know specifically at where I work, uh, one of our pulmonologists is really into this right now. And she's sending us a lot of referrals for dysphagia and obstructive sleep apnea. And we're like in preliminary talks right now to do um, like a research study with the speech therapy team and pulmonology on this. So,
0: I mean, that would be really cool if it actually happens, but. Yeah, keep us posted. I wonder mm-hmm. what they did during the 20 minutes of an MES because I mean my understanding and my yeah. training was like you can't just sit there. So they were doing something. No. And it'd be interesting. I'm, I'm guessing they did like more masako
2: exercises or like effortful swallows, but I agree. I you're you're supposed to be doing something when
0: the machine's on. But I just I'm I'm saying this out loud because I'm wondering if like if patients can do. Home exercise for six or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to know if the NMES was even necessary or if it was yeah. the exercise itself um, that will be able to achieve those results. But I agree. Can... I
2: read some other research that I didn't write about this, and NMES was not involved in those other studies. So, um, and they still had um, some improvements in their swallow and obstructive sleep apnea scores went down, which is a good thing.
0: Interesting. That's always the complexity of dysphagia treatment or any medical or dysphagia research or any medical research is all the different variables that are involved, (laughs) like how you can recreate that and what you can actually glean from what they did in a very structured clinical setting where, like you said, they have the opportunity to work with them six days a week. But Yeah, Yeah, I I think I agree that I wish more studies gave more
2: specific layouts like this. Like we did this for this many minutes this is this is generous most studies don't do that for this much detail for us clinicians
1: yeah just to be able to kind of replicate it and i think you know after researching this and kind of reading this article too you know it makes sense that that they're correlated it's just something that i feel like i didn't really think about as a clinician prior to making this resource and it is helpful
2: mm-hmm Mm -hmm. because now I'm, when I see obstructive sleep apnea, when I'm doing chart reviews, I pay a lot more attention to it than I maybe did before.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Thank you. Okay. We're going to talk about the resource called time pressure management for the treatment of information processing speed. And this is again, a carryover from last month. And it's a two page resource. And the first page has kind of the layout of how this treatment works. And then the second page is um, a place where patients and therapists can write down and kind of interact with the treatment. So Jennifer, tell us more about this.
1: Yeah. So I kind of introduced time pressure management. I don't know if it was last month or the month before as one of the treatments recommended in the new INCog for treatment of information processing speed. We talked about this along with kind of some medication um, recommendations. And so I didn't go into detail at that time of, you know, kind of what time pressure management is and how you use it. Um, and so I kind of want to go through that now. So there are definitely some prerequisites that are needed um, from the patient to be able to to complete time pressure management. So it is considered a strategy for somebody who has difficulty with or slowed information processing. So, you know, number one, they really have to be aware that they have that impairment and how it affects, you know, their daily activities. Um, They have to kind of be able to anticipate and identify situations where there is increased time pressure and be able to implement those compensatory strategies successfully. Um, And also, you know, the person has to be able to learn new information because this is something new to them that they have not used before. Um, So kind of to successfully use time pressure management, um, there's kind of a hierarchically ordered levels. And so number one is the strategic or the prevention level. And so at this level, decisions are made on parts of the task that can be completed beforehand without any time pressure. And so, for example, when you're driving a car, um, decisions can be made about what time you're going to leave. Um, Decisions can be made about what route you're going to take. Um, So, you know, thinking about this, you might put it in your GPS before you even leave your house or even, you know, 30 minutes when you had before you had planned to leave your house and see, Nowadays, you know, our GPS tells us how long it's going to take to get somewhere. Is there excessive traffic um, and those types of things? So kind of implementing that for um, the strategic level. The second level is called the tactical or the management level. So at this level, a person must anticipate events and adapt before time pressure builds up. Um, Time pressure may be present, but it's often more manageable at this level. And so, kind of going back to that activity of driving a car, a person may adapt their driving speed if they're running late. Might not be the safest thing to do if you're going to go a little faster than you need to go. But that is just—I never, I never
0: do that.
1: Just Just an example of how um, we may make changes, kind of in the moment when we're starting to feel a little bit of time pressure. And then the third level is the operational level. So this is kind of when you are completing the activity. So, you know, you have to make immediate decisions and actions uh, to prevent failure um, with time pressure, typically present or typically present. And so, you know, going back to that driving a car activity. So a person may hit the brakes or have to turn the wheel to avoid a collision. A person may have to maneuver through traffic or take a detour. So oftentimes these are things that may arise that you're not aware they're going to arise, but um, we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, uh, kind of creating an emergency plan. And so that's where you're gonna discuss what are some things that could potentially come up during whatever activity has that time pressure. Um, And just kind of thinking ahead of time, what will you do in that situation? So that if it does arise, you kind of already have thought through it and implement some of those strategies. Um, So really kind of the goal was to complete both the strategic level and the tactical level without time pressure. And then this kind of reduces time pressure at the operational level when you're actually completing that task and improving task performance. So I, I feel like this is something that not only we can use as speech pathologists, but also other therapists can kind of use in in their therapies as well. So when you're training time pressure management, it's kind of recommended to um, complete these steps. So one, you know, we have to identify the problem. We have to identify that a person has slowed information processing speed. So typically we do a standardized evaluation. um, And so we may be able to kind of notice during that standardized evaluation that somebody is struggling with this Um, and it's also important for them to be aware of that and so sometimes the person may already be aware of that or sometimes we may help them become more aware of it by our education and our feedback and so that's kind of the first step in this and then us as a therapist we want to teach the strategy so kind of thinking about four steps identifying and analyzing tasks that involve time pressure so, besides for driving a car and getting somewhere, we can think about like planning a meal, um, watching television shows, different things like that. Um, and then we want to prevent time pressure by making a plan of action and decisions that can be made before the task begins. Manage the time pressure by making an emergency plan, like I mentioned, for unexpected circumstances, and then execute that task and monitor your performance. And so, just like with all tasks, we're We're more teaching strategies. You know, we're gonna provide models and explanations, and then we ultimately want to have distributed practice um, and just make it more meaningful and personalized for our patients. Um, It's really important that they kind of come up with those activities that they are already feeling a little bit pressure with completing, and then we want to have this generalize to new and more difficult situations, and so. Um, again, this is just the therapist kind of providing feedback as we're implementing the strategy with more and more tasks.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of, I mean, you can adapt this for so many different levels. Like it could be as simple as, um, cooking a meal, although that's a little Mm -hmm. bit complicated. Um, even just like
2: what crossing the street like sometimes you can't do you wait for the car do you have enough time to get across the street I don't know yeah
0: yeah so simple as that and then you could bring it into something as complex as like people who are computer programmers like they have to get something programmed within a certain time frame Mm -hmm. So I like that it, you can really adapt it to a broad range of people at different levels. Could it even be like a
2: student needing to get an assignment in by a certain time mm-hmm. perhaps?
1: I don't know. Yeah, I think that would be a great idea for this one.
2: Because I guess I'm, I'm I'm seeing time pressure management but I'm also just seeing time management. I'm trying to make it a little simpler for myself because um, the pressure is already implied, right? When
0: time management's involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's these kinds of conversations that might feel silly or tedious, especially like if you're a newer therapist, like, is this really therapy? Like, are we just like talking through how to do this? Like, shouldn't we be doing worksheets or shouldn't we be doing puzzles or something? And, and like, can we bill for this? And I think this is absolutely like the conversations we should be having because again, with, talking about insight and trying to improve insight i think there's for any of us who have a brain injury at some point we're going to we're going to assume that we can still do things that we can't and so by slowing it down and really thinking through these strategies and how we can come up with an action plan and an emergency plan and how to execute it and reflect on what went well and what could go better like those are the conversations that are really going to shift the functional everyday tasks that people are doing, so
1: yeah. And I think I about just,
0: my patients
1: that have you know, you, you tell them to do something, and just telling them to do that task, it just is so overwhelming. And so, I think this kind of helps them break it down into those you know, easier steps, kind of thinking about that long term goal and breaking it down kind of into short term steps, and um, just being able to, I think, break it down like that really helps my patients. I know be more successful.
2: Mm -hmm. I was just doing this maybe four hours ago with a patient, not, but I didn't have this material in front of me because she was talking about how after her brain injury, she's always late. She was late to my appointment and she just didn't understand. She like sets alarms and things, but her alarms are like, don't give her enough time to like really get to a place on time. And so I'm like already excited to use this with her.
0: Mm Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, and then this segues into the second article snapshot that Stephanie wrote um, again about the INCOG guidelines. So Stephanie, tell us about yep. this. So these are the
2: guidelines um, following a traumatic brain injury, part three. This one's on executive functions. So kind of as we know, um, after a traumatic brain injury, executive function deficits are often the most concerning for patients and their families um, because executive functions significantly impact our daily activities, our work, personal relationships, academic, and economic well-being. I mean, the executive functions is what makes us uniquely human, right? So encouraging patients to use self-monitoring of their performance with everyday tasks is shown to improve executive function abilities. So I, um, oh, we well metacognition is down below, um, but I always use that metacognition strategy. Um, therapists should also encourage the person to use self-awareness with each cognitive and emotional domain, um, because this could help them highlight some areas where more feedback, from the therapist is needed for error awareness. Um, And then using that metacognitive strategies should be used throughout any kind of executive function treatment um, to allow that patient to identify and develop strategies for any specific tasks. So I'm always asking my patients like, well, how do you think it's gonna do or how you're gonna do? And then after the task, okay, what did you think? What did you learn? So another way to do that is to use that plan, do check review, which is more of a very kind of strategic way of doing that, um, or when they need more support for that framework of metacognition. Um, But oftentimes, I'm just having a conversation with my patients on um, maybe seeing what they have to say about how they did. And then I might give them some of my feedback about, well, yes, you did really well with that. I just noticed XYZ. And then they stop and think, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that. Because, you know, sometimes the patient might be just consumed with the task because it's, it's either new or they're surprised that it used to be easy. And now they're using more cognitive engagement and energy. Um, so metacognitive skills are some of the best teaching skills, I think, for patients and for us therapists.
0: And then, when you say therapists should encourage people to use self awareness with each cognitive and emotional domain, mm-hmm. domain, that would be checking in and, and asking, so like, wh- on. like, how yeah. do you feel about tension? How do you think you're yeah. doing like, able to process this in a speedy manner? Okay. How do you feel about your memory or
2: how do you feel like your emotional regulation is? Like, do you feel more irritable lately or? how are you feeling? Um, Just having those like conversations instead of just generally, because maybe generally they're doing okay. But when you really go to each individual one, then you might have more of a conversation with the person on, oh, maybe I do need to, we need to focus a little bit deeper in that area.
0: Yeah. And for any newer therapists who are listening or watching, one thing that I like to do as much as possible. I mean, obviously with, you can't do this with every patient, but I like to walk in the room and ask them what they want to work on. And usually at first it's like, I don't know, what do you think we should work on? Like, isn't that why you're being paid to be here? And so then I'll, I'll break it down and I'll say, we could do this task, which would really focus on your ability to have more complex conversational exchange, or we could do this task. And that's really working on your ability to focus and pay attention. Or we could do this task and that's working on your ability to use your working memory. So hold on to information while you're manipulating it and doing something else. And so I try to like break everything down and provide options for them. And then over time they're they're figuring out and learning about the domains based on the options that I'm giving them. And eventually I'm able to walk into the room and say, what do you want to work on today? And it's always the best thing when they're like, I want to work on divided attention. Like, I want you to distract me while I'm trying to do this, because that's what's going to happen to me at work. So I think this is great. And I think um, making sure that they're checking in with themselves, you're having those conversations together, that self-awareness is so important. I'm just
2: smiling because it's the exact same with me, with our new patients. You know, you, you go in, you say, what do you want to work on? They're like, well, shouldn't you know what we're working on? And then you're right. You, I'm sitting here like smiling. I didn't, I'm having a metacognition moment of like, yeah, that is the the natural progression of therapy because I did it with a patient today. And he's like, I want to work on problem solving and reasoning. I'm like, okay, let's do this.
0: Yeah. But yeah, it makes it more fun for everybody. And, and then it's not us coming in telling people what they're going to do. It's like, it's a collaborative approach.
2: But you're right. It is a really scary thing to do as a new grad because the the way you you get skilled at that is you continually kind of know what tools you have for what that patient needs. And as a new grad, it just is all overwhelming. So it does take experience and it's okay if you don't walk in the room your first day of your CFY, even the last day of your CFY. And it just takes time.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we'll move on to our case study. So this is really a chance for us to do a couple of things. We get to talk about some of the other resources in the library because there's over 1,400 resources at this point, which is just a lot to go through and remember. So we try to just highlight some of those resources that are there for you whenever you need them. And then it also gives us a chance to just talk about different clinical cases, because we all have different experiences and perspectives. Um, Stephanie and Jennifer have a lot more experience than I do, so I'm always learning, and I think these conversations are really helpful. So um, this month, we're talking about Jackie, who is a 32-year-old female who had a craniotomy for a benign brain tumor. She works as a second-grade teacher. Her partner has noticed a change in her personality and behavior, stating that um, she has lost her filter. Her speech is very loquacious with few conversational turns and limited topic maintenance. So one of those patients where you walk in the room and you might get a word in edgewise, Um, she has impaired short-term memory resulting in fragmented conversation and poor follow-through on immediate tasks at hand. She's physically able to walk and do all ADLs and she plans to return home in three days. And she also plans to return to work next week. And I don't know if you guys see this, but I always tend to see this where the cognitive impairment is significantly higher than people are talking about because their physical abilities are I fine. I feel and like so it's these like, are the
1: scariest patients. A yeah. Or like higher risk of doing something they shouldn't do. Um, yeah, because they're kind of have that, that, yeah, impairment that's not visible. And so, if you're just looking at the person, they look completely fine, but not knowing that they might have kind of a brain injury behind that. And then what's more
2: challenging is this patient doesn't seem like she really understands her impairments either cognitively. And then my question, as I read this earlier this week, I was like, okay, is she planning to work or are her doctors telling her, or is just, that's what she's gonna do. Cause usually (laughs) where I work, a patient who's had a craniotomy anatomy has to like go through therapy bef- and get the therapist input before they can just return to work.
0: Huh. So, that's interesting. Yeah. I think that depends on the setting.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It does, it does, but I'm like, okay. <laughs> I think the other thing that's hard is there's personalities that are, that do not have brain injuries that are like this. Like we've all met people that just talk a lot and they're just Mm -hmm. extremely extroverted and maybe not totally aware of turn-taking. So like, I think it can happen, especially in a short rehab stay where people are like, gosh, like she's just a very talkative person and and they don't know the baseline and maybe they don't ever really get to engage with the family because it's such a short stay. So things kind of fall through the cracks. Mm -hmm. Um, because people are like, oh, I,
2: yeah. I'd be calling that family member right away and asking and say, Hey, like I need to know some
0: background, but yeah. Is that what you do? You just always get the family on the phone. Yeah. Not, I mean,
2: usually they're there and I might like, I'll ask Jackie, Jackie, is it okay if I ask your, your partner, a couple questions about you just so I can get a better understanding of maybe what you were like before this craniotomy so I can really help you kind of get back to your normal. And once you explain it like that, she's like, yeah, sure. Um, and so that's just, I need to know what she was like before,
1: before I can truly help her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's critical kind of in these situations. Cause like you said, sometimes it can be a situation where there are people who haven't had a brain injury that, you know, kind of have some of these, um, Of show some of these difficulties. And so I think that helps us to understand, and also um, it just kind of brings in that clinical judgment too. And that's really having to use that when we're determining is it baseline? Is it something new? Um, I think just having all of those pieces kind of helps us make a good decision.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about some of the resources we might pull from the library. Um, Stephanie, you selected one called Strategies for Executive Function Dysfunction. This one, this resource keeps coming up across all the different PTOTS. This is my
2: favorite, favorite, favorite topic. one. Love this one. I use it every day at work. No joke. Um, I also really like that you put the case study information on the side. Thank you. Cause then I don't have to remember it. Um, <laughs> I, like I said, I use this all the time. And so I know her main concern is like the loquacious speech and conversation turns, Um, but we did kind of talk about short-term memory or having poor follow-through with tasks. So I kind of jumped in on that one because sometimes it's just, there's too much. And so there's overwhelming and people get distracted, like, oh, I'm going to start this task. And then they look across the room and they're like, oh, I didn't finish that task. And then nothing gets done. So I really like to highlight, you know, making a to-do list, trying to like reduce distractions in the room, um, really trying to take that time to think about what you want to do, and then break down the steps of how you do it, um, just to kind of keep that person in on task, um, and just doing small chunks of time, kind of in the beginning after craniotomy, because um, I think with my experience of working with people similar to Jackie is they just wanna jump right back into how they did things before. And then they're really surprised that they're really tired or they're not doing it to the capability of their previous self. Um, So just really focusing on slowing down and doing it in small chunks of time um, has been successful for myself and my patients that I've worked with.
0: Yeah. Yeah, excellent. And Jennifer, you chose a handout handout called Self-Awareness, and it's a one-page handout that breaks it down um, between intellectual awareness, emergent awareness, and anticipatory awareness. Why did you pick this resource? So
1: when I was reading this case study, it just made me think, you know, that she, if she's planning to return to work, I felt like she has no awareness of her deficits. And so I think this is a good resource to Use with the patient, or also use with their care, caregivers to kind of explain how awareness can be impaired after um, a craniotomy or injury to the brain, um, and just like talking about the different levels. So, trying to figure out where she is right now, so that you can help her best. Um, so, like you said, there's three different levels. There's the intellectual awareness, and this is kind of the low level of awareness where you know a person may not see that they have difficulty with something themselves, but they may say, Oh, I am having trouble with memory because my husband keeps telling me that I'm forgetting everything. So it's not that they're aware of it themselves, but they know that it may be there because other people are constantly telling them that they're having trouble with that. And so then you go to the mid level of awareness, which is emergent awareness. And that is when, you know, the person can see in the moment that they're having trouble with something. And so, um, you know, she may be going to tell somebody about what she does for work and in the middle of that conversation she's like oh what do we call that again or what is the name of that or oh i'm having trouble remembering remembering that information so kind of in that moment she was aware of having difficulty with memory and then the anticipatory awareness is kind of the high level and so this is when a person knows that they have difficulty with something and they implement strategies ahead of time to reduce the risk of that impairment kind of getting in the way of what they're trying to accomplish. And so I think of kind of like that anticipatory awareness. Oftentimes we don't see that in the hospital setting in that inpatient rehab setting yet, just because they're not, they're just not at that level yet. They're still working on the basic things, still trying to understand their diagnosis um, and how it has affected them and changed their cognitive skills. And so I think it's just really important to bring a, awareness to um the different levels and why it's important to just to know where they're at
2: yeah yeah I I agree I think you kind of talked about it that when acute care in the hospital you are kind of seeing that low level maybe emerging in the mid level and then once they get time to outpatient I mean maybe they're on that border of low to mid and then we're trying to move more to high Um, yeah, I like this
0: handout so much. And I like this because I'm just thinking of, again, newer therapists or any therapist who feels like they have to fix this in a short rehab state. Like it's a good reminder that the focus really needs to be on education and that mm-hmm. we're not there to fix it and like magically make insight happen in the next few days, but really have those conversations about exactly what this out know, is laying
1: out. I feel like especially with how short our length of stays are getting, you know, an in, inpatient rehab, average length of stay is about two weeks. And sometimes I feel like with our patients, especially somebody like Jackie, who is physically doing pretty well, you know, their stay is going to be even shorter because you know insurance kind of bases that on physical abilities. And so, you know, I think about some of our patients we've had this like seven to 10 day length of stay. I feel like as soon as I'm doing my evaluation, they're discharging. And so there's not a lot of time to kind of teach them strategies or kind of get them to implement them while doing tasks. It's more of that just basic education so that they understand where they're at and just kind of knowing that at that next level, they'll kind of get um, to learn more of those compensatory strategies to be able to kind of start to implement those and compensate for their deficits.
0: Yep, yep, great. Um, the resource I chose is more for the family and this is called changes to behavior and personality after brain injury. And this one is like, there's all different kinds of changes to behavior and personality that may not relate to Jackie, but I think it's good to just normalize that, um, a brain surgery can cause similar things to a brain injury. And so just being able to point out which ones you're seeing with Jackie's husband and with Jackie in the room if possible. Um, Again, just to kind of normalize that it's, it's, this could happen to anyone who's in her situation.
1: I think that kind of brings up a topic too, where, um, you know, I feel like sometimes like even just my patients who've had a stroke, you know, sometimes I'll Kind of talk as like a brain injury because we know it is a type of brain injury, but you know, to them, they think of it as something different than what they think of as just like a typical like traumatic brain injury. And so, I think that is important to just kind of explain how a lot of these different things they are. You know, they are considered like a brain injury acquired or traumatic. Um, I see that a lot. I know when you wrote this,
2: Megan, you didn't put where in the brain and that bugged mm-hmm. me, but I like that you didn't do that. Um, I'm assuming she's having like a frontal lobe, benign brain tumor, because mm-hmm. these are the things you would see with that. But, um, you know, I know there's probably some new grads listening, or maybe old, old like veterans be surfaced too, probably not, but um, just thinking, that's the first thing that with this information my brain filled in the missing piece of where the tumor was um but I don't know did that happen to you too as well or is it just mm-hmm. just me?
1: Yeah, I feel like that comes with experience and kind of <laughs> yeah seeing a lot of patients and diagnoses and yeah 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 tumors are but I like that you didn't. But-
0: Surgery, like you don't know what happened during the surgery. You don't know mm-hmm. kind of how, mm-hmm. what the tumor was shaped like. I mean, you can kind of look at imaging, but it, I think it it does come down more to the symptoms that you're seeing in the in the changes mm-hmm. that are expressed. Yeah. Any other thoughts? I feel like I interrupted both of you.
2: <laughs> I forgot that I... handout too. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm gonna flip through some resources that you all might be interested in that were freshly created from the OT and PT teams. So the OT writers came out with a handout um, called overstimulation after brain injury. So this is an excellent handout for someone who's had a traumatic brain injury and they need need to understand like what's triggering that overstimulation and then strategies for actually coping with that overstimulation. So, it has lists for both of those things. They also came out with um, a handout about rehabilitation settings. So, we have a similar handout in the library, but it doesn't go quite into the detail that this two page handout does. So, it describes acute rehab, long term acute care hospitals, inpatient rehab, skilled nursing facilities, home health care, and outpatient rehab. So, a great resource if you're talking to a family and they're trying to wrap their mind around this system, um, that we have in place. This, this is reflective of the United States system, which is very familiar to us, but I think we're any family trying to navigate this and like, what's the next step and where should I take, um, my loved one? This is a great resource to hand to them. Uh, the OT team also came out with a minimum wage activity. So this is where you go onto a government website. You get the minimum wage for your locale. And then it's kind of a game where you're drawing different cards. So you're trying to calculate how much money do you make off of minimum wage? And then if you had a hospital stay that cost this much, what would happen to your budget? Um, If you bought a new coat, what would happen to your budget? Things like that. So it has a kind of one page worksheet where you get to do a bunch of math calculations based on minimum wage. Um, And the physical therapy team came out with a general handout, um, basically just describing um, what Huntington's disease is and how speech occupational and and physical therapy can address and optimize quality of life for those patients. I like that picture. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. Lots of great new resources. You can get access to these um, and many, many more at therapyinsights.com. We'll have all the links available in the show notes. If you have a question for us, that could be a question about any resources that we have or don't have that you would like to see us create um, or a question that we could address in the case study section of this show. You can reach us at support at therapyinsights.com. Um, If you're a member, be sure to vote on what we create next. And we will have a new episode coming on July 1st. So we will see you then. Thanks, everybody. Bye.